Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 40, verses 1 to 2, and can be found on, the, on pages 566 of the Church Bibles. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39, and can be found on page 1135 of the Church Bibles. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding with, for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer as we prepare for the preaching of God's word. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Imagine with me this morning that you have boarded your flight, stowed your carry-on, fastened your seatbelt, and then you find out next to you for the next eight hours is not a chatty Cathy or a conversational Ken, thank goodness, uh, not a leg spreader, an armrest bandit, or a snoring sleeper. No, next to you for this eight-hour flight, you have a first-time 
flyer, a first-time flyer, someone who has never flown before, and they are scared, very scared. So you, the seasoned and secure flyer, uh, what would you tell this person who is absolutely petrified of flying? How would you reassure them that everything is going to be okay? Well, as a starter, you might tell them about all the plans and procedures that are in place to ensure their safety, right? You could tell them, for example, that the European Air Safety Administration has mandated equipment checks that have to be performed regularly on the aircraft. So sometimes these involve virtually taking the whole plane apart, inspecting it, and putting it back together. All kinds of these checks all the time for aircraft in the EU. Or you could tell them some statistics if you want to reassure them. You could tell them that every year there are fewer and fewer crashes of commercial aircraft. I couldn't find the statistics for the EU, but in the US at least, more people in the US die every year from getting up during the night to get a drink of water than they do from an airplane crash. Now that might say something about Americans' habits and how they live, but anyway, you get the sense, yeah, it's pretty safe, right? It's pretty safe. More people die getting up for a drink of water than crashing in a plane. Or you could tell them about the hours and hours of pilot training, uh, training that includes emergencies. If you think of the, um, the, the, the miracle on the uh, Potomac or the, um, the East River a few years ago with the Captain Sullivan, right? Lands in the river. Uh, of course, you might not want to tell that to the person next to you. You might just <laughs> want to keep that one in the back of your mind, you know? But. Uh, Anyway, you get the point. Or you could just tell them you have no hesitation putting your kids, putting your parents on that plane. You're completely confident that the plane's going to get to where it's supposed to go. Plenty of good things you can tell that first-time flyer. Plenty of good things that will help reassure them. Plenty of good things that will give them a sense of peace as they're on that plane. So hold that thought. We'll return to it in a little bit. Now let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8, as I've said before in this series, uh, Romans 8 is one of the great, great, great chapters of the Bible. I think you'll, most of you will agree with me in that respect. And much of its greatness, I believe, is due to its immense theological richness, right? If it were a dessert, Romans 8 would be like a sprungly dark chocolate truffle cake, deep and dense, uh, weighty and profound, powerful and intense, breathtaking and awe-inspiring. No normal cake, to be sure. All right, so now I'd like you to stop thinking about that cake and think about Romans 8. Think about this. I wonder if we always read Romans 8 correctly. I wonder if we always read Romans 8 right. Because it is so theologically rich, Perhaps sometimes we read it simply as a theological textbook. A theological textbook with proof text for this doctrine or that doctrine. A theological textbook with or ex explanations about this dogma or that dogma. Well, this morning, let's continue to think about Romans 8 a bit differently. That's what we've been trying to do for the last few weeks. Let's continue to think about Romans 8 
in a little different light. Let's continue to think about not so much as a theological textbook, but as a, a personal note, a personal note, a personal note from the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. And it's a note in which he tries to reassure them of their safety and security in Jesus Christ. It's a personal note reassuring them of Christ's commitment to their ultimate well-being. It's a personal note reassuring them of their eternal protection in him. This chapter of Romans 8 is, of course, in part intended to instruct, no doubt about that. But as I've said before in this sermon series, more than to instruct, perhaps, it is meant to give comfort and provide hope, instill confidence, and build trust. It's probably not the first time in the, that these believers in Rome have heard words like this. But evidently, they need to hear it again. And so Paul tells them again why ultimately they have nothing to fear if they belong to Jesus Christ. Which brings us now back to that illustration I gave at the beginning of the sermon, the one about sitting next to a first-time flyer. Just as we were trying to reassure a fearful flyer, so the Apostle Paul seems here in Romans 8 to be reassuring some fearful believers. Believers fearful, perhaps, about what might yet await them in their lives or in their deaths. Fearful, perhaps, about what might happen to them about how things might turn out for them. Yeah, Paul seems to be offering here reassurances to these fearful believers. And the, and the way he goes about doing so is the way we might have gone about doing so with that fearful flyer. He does so by providing good, solid reasons. Good, solid reasons not to fear. Good, solid reasons to feel safe and secure. First reason Paul gives to these fearful believers in Rome is to do with God having a plan for those who belong to him. Paul starts out with these very well-known and well-loved words from verse 28, and he says this. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So as many Bible commentators point out, this is not a guarantee or a promise that everything in your life will work out the way you want it to work out. That's not the promise here. That's not the assurance here. That's not the guarantee. No far from it. This is rather a promise that God can and will use everything that you experience in your life for is his ultimate purposes in you. Whether it's health or illness, triumph or tragedy, gain or loss, success or failure, life or death, God can and will use it all to accomplish what he has ultimately planned for you. The key really to understanding this promise is that word good. That word good. God works for the good of those who love him, the passage says. So when we hear, when we hear of God working for our good, we probably think about God working in our lives to promote our health and wealth, to promote achievement and advancement in our jobs, uh, to promote a happy marriage or successful kids, 
a nice retirement or enjoyable family times. All these things we often define and prioritize as good. Well, to be sure, God can work in this way. He can bring about these types of good things in our lives. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. When the Apostle Paul talks about God working for the good of those who love him, he's mainly talking about good in terms of spiritual good, eternal good, godly good. He's talking about the the good of making us more Christ-like. You see a reference there in verse 28 to being conformed into the image of Christ. When he's talking about good here, Paul's talking about the good of having us love God above all and others as ourselves. He's talking about the good of transforming us into people who are humble and kind and generous and selfless and patient and peacemaking and forgiving and full of joy. When he talks about good, he's talking about the the good of shaping us into people who are all about his priorities and his pursuits and not our own. When Paul talks about good, he's talking about the good of growing in faith, growing in hope, growing in love. He's talking about the good of drawing closer to God. So this kind of good is reflected, for example, in a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians 5. Here Paul prays for God to work for the good of these believers in Thessalonica. And this is what he says. This is Paul's prayer for them. He says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. So this is God's good for us. Not good as the world defines good, but good in the way God defines good. And in everything in our lives, whether painful or pleasant, whether, whether difficult or desirable, God can and will bring about such good, his good, in our lives. Okay, that's the first point. God's got a plan, a plan for our ultimate good. This is Paul's first reason for the Roman believers to feel safe and secure. Now the second reason. I go to verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So not only does God have a plan, he's got a process we find out here. A process relating to the salvation of his people. We read that those whom he chooses for salvation, those whom he predestines, he reaches out to them with an irresistible grasp. That's the divinely calling them part. And those whom he reaches out to with an irresistible grasp, he then presents as perfect before God. That's the justification part he mentions. And those he presents as perfect before God, then he enables to spend eternity with him. That's the glorification part. He glorifies them. Predestined, then called, then justified, then glorified. This is the process, God's process, of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this process, this is the key here. God sees it through. God sees this process through, start to finish, ensuring the eternal safety and security of the believer. Uh, This program is not or this process is not like a program, for example, at a a university where where lots of folks might be chosen 
uh, to study there. But then some may or may not complete their degrees. No, this process is one in which those who truly enter the program by God's grace and through God's help, they're going to finish the program. There's no doubt about it. As Paul says in, First Philippians, in Philippians 1 6, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will see this process of, of salvation through with each and every person that belongs to him in Jesus Christ. So once again, the message from Paul is clear. No need to fear, folks. No need to fear. Okay, that then another reason for these believers in Rome to feel safe and secure. Not only is there a plan, there's a process. There's a process. Now a third reason for believers to feel safe and secure, God's on their side, Paul says. Or to put it another way, God's got their backs. This is what he says in verse 31, middle of the verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So as I said, this is a statement of trust. A statement that God's on our side. God's got our backs. And that alone should bring great comfort, great assurance. Who, after all, wouldn't want the God of the universe caring for them, watching over them, guiding them, defending them, protecting them? Who, after all, wouldn't want the God of the universe committed to their ultimate and eternal well-being? Paul here not only tells the Roman believers of God's commitment to them, he shows them, he gives them an object lesson here. He shows them with an example from salvation history. And this is Jesus' death on the cross. If you have any doubts, Paul is essentially saying here, if you have any doubts, folks, whether God is for you, consider Christ's death on the cross for you. Consider that God gave his only son for you. So great is his commitment that he was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son for you and your salvation. How are you going to argue with that as far as commitment? How are you going to argue with that as far as assurance? Okay, that was the third. Now we're going to go on to the last and final reason that Paul gives them to be less fearful. This has to do with the power of God's love. The power of God's love. Let's read now these familiar words from the conclusion of Romans 8. I'm going to start at verse 35 and then I'm going to jump to verse 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is Paul's final assurance here. His final reason for these believers in Rome to feel safe and secure in Christ. And the reason is the power of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. So powerful, Paul says, is his love that nothing, nothing can separate them 
from this love. All those things these believers in Rome probably fear in their lives. All these things that they believe can hurt them, harm them, kill them, destroy them. All these things, uh, say trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, poverty, danger, violence, death, demons, the scary present or, or the even scarier future. None of these things, Paul says, none will be able to overcome the power of Christ's love such that the believer will be separated from it. In this way, you could compare Christ's love to a gigantic magnet, right? A magnet that relentlessly draws things toward it. Uh, just as neither wood nor plastic nor aluminum, concrete, water, Teflon, copper, uh, any substance really can stop a magnetic force strong enough. So nothing can stop the force of Christ's love uh, for the believer. The believer will be drawn through Christ's love because it's that powerful. The love of Christ is so powerful it overcomes anything and everything, even death itself, Paul says, even death itself. Okay, so at the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to imagine you were a person on an airplane sitting next to a first-time flyer, a fearful first-time flyer. I ask you then to imagine what you, as a seasoned flyer, as a safe and secure flyer, what you would say to that fearful first-time flyer to make them a bit less fearful as they flew on that aircraft. So let me ask you this now. When it comes to your experience as a passenger on the flight of life, which of those two passengers do you actually feel more like? First-time flyer? The first-time fearful flyer? Or the experienced flyer? Feeling absolutely safe and secure. Totally convinced that nothing wrong could happen. Which of those passengers do you actually feel more like? Do you actually feel like the seasoned passenger? Or the first-time flyer? I think if most of us were honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that for the flight of life, or on the flight of life, we sometimes can feel a lot like that fearful first-time flyer. We can have fears, serious fears, significant fears, overwhelming fears sometimes. And of course, this should come as no surprise, right? Given the turbulence, sorry for extending the metaphor, probably longer than it should be extended, but given the turbulence that this life can subject us to, given the deadly hazards we can encounter and the mortal threats we can face, given the pain we can experience and the hurt we can endure, given the uncertainty we can face and the unknowns we encounter, it's completely natural for us to fear because in a very real way, in a very real way there is indeed much in this world to fear. There is indeed a lot that can hurt us at some level. And so given the existence of all these things that can so easily cause us to fear, uh, we like the fearful flyer, we like the believers in Rome, we need to be reminded, don't we, 
We need to be reminded, reminded of some good, solid reasons not to fear, not to be afraid. We need to be reminded of some good, solid reasons to expect that ultimately, eternally, we're going to be okay. And this, of course, is what the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us here in Romans 8. Paul has told us that, that God's got a plan and that he's got a process. He's told us that God is on our side and that is demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's nothing he won't do for us. Paul has told us that the love of God, that the love God has for us in Jesus Christ, this love is so powerful, nothing will ever separate us from it. To that last point, that point about the power of God's love. I'm reminded of a discussion we had a few weeks ago when we were looking at Romans 8, 1 through 4. So you might have been there. It's probably two weeks ago or so. You might remember that here in those verses, uh, Paul told us that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I commented at the time that I can imagine God looking down at us from heaven, witnessing all our, our spiritual striving and straining to gain his favor, and all our spiritual bustling and busyness to, to merit his acceptance. And I can imagine God saying to himself as he looks down and sees us going like, all like this. What part of the no and no condemnation do these people not understand? What part of the no and no condemnation has eluded their understanding? Why do they continually try to earn what has already been given them? Any of you remember that discussion? Three of you, great. <laughs> I imagine he says a very similar thing in relation to Romans 8.39, where Paul lists all the things that will not separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul essentially here says here that nothing, no thing, will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I can imagine once again God on high asking himself, what part of the no and no thing do they not understand? What part of the, the no and nothing do they not understand when it comes to being separated from my love? Why when they are faced with something... Do they forget that no thing will separate them from my love? Why, when they are faced with something, do they automatically go to fear? What about the no and nothing do they not get? As in nothing will separate them from my love. So, this is what I might recommend. Given the world we live in, given the lives we live, I might recommend that when life on planet Earth inevitably causes us to question, causes us to doubt, causes us to fear, and it will, right? Causes us to question whether we're ultimately going to be okay. Causes us to doubt whether God is ultimately going to do right by us. Causes us to fear that our present circumstance, our present situation, is all there is and ever will be. So I rec might recommend in such cases that we just pick up Romans 8. 
Pick up Romans 8 and read it. Read it to be reminded. Read it to be reassured. Read it to know. Read it to believe. Read it to hope in the only real hope that exists on this earth. And that is Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these uh, words of assurance and reassurance through the Apostle Paul. Life gives us so much uh, to fear. And Lord, we just need to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ and what we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us, Lord, as we live our lives from day to day to always have the hope that is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Go into the world this week assured and confident that nothing, no thing, will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and remain with you always. Amen.